Hello, welcome to the Yarniacs podcast. This is episode 55, which we are recording on Thursday, February 6th. I'm Gail. And I'm Charlene. And pardon my voice today, I do have a cold, but today is a special episode because we have a guest on the podcast today, Jeannie Carver from Imperial Stock Ranch. How are you, Jeannie? Hi, good morning. I'm doing great, thank you. Excellent. Now, for the anyone who's listening who doesn't know, Imperial Stock Ranch, which you'll learn a lot more about in this episode, is also the yarn maker for the Olympic sweater of the 2014 Winter Olympics. So very excited to have you on the show today, considering the sweater's making its debut tomorrow in the opening ceremonies, right? It is, and I sort of feel like I've been on a national sweater tour or something. It's been really, really exciting. But And I always, always like to clarify that we were involved with Ralph Lauren um, for the opening ceremony sweater. There are many, many companies in the country that have been involved with them in various pieces of the Olympic apparel and uniforms. So we're one small part of the story, but um, so blessed to have been chosen um, our yarn for the bare garment, which is the opening ceremony uniform for Team USA. So that's Friday night coming up on the 7th, tomorrow night. Well, congratulations with all that we've learned about Imperial Stock Ranch getting ready for this episode. It is just so amazing to me, and I'm so thankful that they picked you because you're a small family-run business with sustainable agriculture, and you're doing all the right things, and that they found you and chose you is just fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, nothing short of a miracle is the way I call it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that the miracle fell into your lap. That is just fantastic. Yeah. So we wanted to talk to you today about mostly yarn-related information because that's what most of our listeners are interested in. They're in the you know knitting, crocheting, spinning, craft field. So all like regular Ravelry users type of people. And we wanted just to find out more about your yarn, more about your story. And before we get into the questions, I just had to tell you that I'm wearing right now a sweater that I knit with your Aran base, which is my favorite, favorite, favorite worsted weight base that I've ever knit with. So <laughs> I love your yarn. Wow. Thank you so much. That's, I'm, um, I'm really honored that you would say that and have that experience. I mean, I mean, okay, of all the things that have been happening recently, that one can make me cry right there. <laughs> well, I'm serious because this has been such a long battle. Um, it's been such a journey for us, and I didn't come into it like your amazing nurse and even you as a fiber artist and knowing all out yarns and knitting and crochet. I came into it as a rancher who had to find a way and didn't know anything. And, in fact, it's the women listening today and, and men who are great fiber artists and work in textiles and wool that have taught me so much and mentored me along to where we are today. Without those people locally that have helped me, we wouldn't be where we are. So thank you for that. That's amazing. Well, you're welcome. And, and your Aaron base is a, a good phenomenon in the knitting industry and the knitting world. A lot of my friends love Aaron. And with the um, upcoming Olympics, we have a knitting fiber aspect of that that we call the Ravelinic Games, <clears throat> and people on Ravelry, Ravelry participate in different events. And I know at least one person, my friend Maggie, who is doing her Ravelinic project using Aaron yarn in 
commemoration of the fact that Aaron is the base for the Olympic opening ceremony sweater. Yeah, it is. I think the design team that was here, that's a whole story, which, you know, if you want to ask me, I'll tell it. But I think when they picked that yarn up right here at the ranch headquarters, they fell in love with it that day. I don't blame them. <laughs> mm -hmm. What can you tell us about Erin in terms of the base and the fiber you use and how it's spun? That's a question I've always wondered. Wow. Well, I don't know how far back. Well, I guess I'll answer it specifically, but and then you can take me further back if you want. But, you know, when we began this process in 1999 to move from only commodity sales, which we had done since the 18, early 1870s, to a product, and there was a specific set of reasons for that. We could not sell the wool in the spring of 99 um, as a commodity like we had always done because of the offshoring movement, the closing, processing, manufacturing entry. So we had to find a new way forward or quit with what um, sheep have given us and for thousands of years and on this ranch now for 143 years. So we had to find a way forward and I began with the closest mill to me, which made the most small mill owned by two women who had mortgaged their houses and put up this mill 180 miles from us. And we went into them um, for, you know, to move into getting that wool into something saleable, which we And we became their biggest customer. And for the next year, I tried to have them spin something I could sell. And that has its own story and set of challenges. But they went out of business within a year, and so then I had to look further out. That another relationship with another family-run mill. But the Aaron yarn developed more uh, in like 2008. We partnered with an internationally known sustainable fashion designer because by then I was selling apparel to a national clothing retailer, all made women, about 20 women I had employed, all fiber artists, knitting, weaving, spinning. The cut and sew was all done in Sisters, Oregon, which is only about 80, 80 miles from the ranch. We were producing apparel for national catalog sales with this national retailer. And I was in so over my head on this. I started reaching out to Portland fashion designers I had read about in magazines. One of them responded. Her name was Anna Cohen, and she ended up coming to work for me on this project of taking fiber from ranch all the way essentially to the runway, and I called it Ranch to Runway Project. Well, Anna wanted to be able to have fabrics and make apparel she was used to making, where she simply sourced fabrics and designed anything you would want in the fashion world, whether it's coats, you know, outerwear, whether it's coats, um, it's dresses, pants, um, blazers, and she needed yarn that could perform at, a, um, at that level. So we were only spinning in a woolen system at that time, and the mill we were using, we had some knot issues. <laughs> as much as I had been frustrated with that for 10 years, we couldn't get rid of them entirely. And so you can't take a yarn with knots in it onto cones into a production knitting facility or weaving facility. So it was with Anna pushing me that I began to search in this country for a way to spin a worsted spun yarn, which it's a different category of yarns than we had been offering. So by 2009, we were able to spin worsted yarns, and I can talk a little bit more about that, for our apparel use. And I said, well, if I'm going into these mills with wool, 
let's send a yarn or two for the hand knit market and add it to our hand knit craft offerings. So that we declare in yarn and we talk to some of our retail partners, our stores, to say what kind of a yarn should we bring and we ended up deciding on this kind of a basic weight knitting yarn that's a three ply, it's a 5.25 worsted count yarn. And the difference between the worsted spinning and the woolen is that all the wool gets washed or scoured, you hear that term, and then carded. But in the worsted system, it goes through combing. And that combing perfectly parallels all the fibers, takes out any shorts, a little bit of noils that you might have left in the woolen system and creates a very smooth comb top. That comb top then moves into a mill to be spun in the worsted system. That's the true difference between worsted and wool spun yarns. The woolen spun are washed, carded, and then they go right to spinning without the combing step. So that Aaron yarn is a smooth um, three-ply basic knitting weight yarn that has a beautiful hand and it's just sort of like working in butter. Yes. I agree. <laughs> I agree. And it's it's also very lofty. So I've always suspected that it was woolen spun instead of worsted because it's so much loftier than most worsted spun yarns I've worked with. Well, that's interesting. And, but that may have to do with where we raised the, 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 it may have to do with the fiber itself. The fact that we are, I'm looking out the window right now, we're having a ongoing raging snowstorm. Um, we're a cold, dry, this is great to have moisture. We, we've been wanting it, so. But it's a, it's a semi-arid hazard country. So our annual rainfall is eight to 10 inches a year. Every drop is precious to us. And of course, our greatest focus, if you've read anything about us, is managing landscape because that's where everything begins. So um, we have a cold, dry desert climate that's perfect for raising fine grades of wool. The sheep produce a very dense fleece and um, a beautiful micron. We select, obviously, for wool quality. We can go into more of that if you want to ask me about it. So we test our micron. We select for staple length and fine grade of wool, as well as the frame of the sheep that we want to negotiate this rugged country which also happened to give us a beautiful um, quality meat lamb. So these sheep are uh, native to this country. They originated here in the 1880s on our ranch and the neighbors uh, commercially, and were so successful that um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture decided these commercial range sheepmen had come on to something really valuable. We, they proved it, it's viable economically. And so they refined what these commercial range sheepmen were doing, of which we were the lead, put it under their direction and um, created a new breed of sheep known as America's breed and came for the Columbia Plateau where they originated where we ranch here. So out, I'm looking out at this snowfall and this cold you know, weather and it's really perfect for producing great wool. Wow, so basically you just said that this was a sheep breed that was originated in the desert of, Air, of Arizona, of Oregon, <laughs> that was so successful that the sheep industry gave it its own name and it's its own breed. 
That's true. And the, and the, the early crossbreeding, I have pictures from um, pre-1900 here. Um, and about 19, oh, 1910, 1908 of uh, some of the predecessors to what we're running today here in terms of sheep. So what, what this, you know, I have to almost back up and give you a bit of history. I don't, I don't know if you are interested in that. Are you interested in that? Yes, indeed, yes. Yeah, and I'm curious, okay. are all of your bases then out of Columbia? Is it, yeah, yes. Columbia. Yes. Okay. Well, it's going to see the Columbia is a crossbreed. Okay. The two most the, the most successful breeds that were crossed to produce a Columbia sheep were Rambouillet, which everyone knows Rambouillet is uh, a fine grade of wool. It's a fine a fine wool sheep. Okay. And then a Lincoln was the other was the cross in the frame size that made this most successful. So the Lincoln Rambouillet was the predecessor to what became the Columbia breed of sheep. Oh, okay. Columbia breed of sheep is a crossbred that's trying to get a superior frame size and uh, meat animal and a superior fiber in the same animal. It's a dual purpose breed. Okay. Now as a breed it's as a breed it's considered a medium wool sheep, a medium wool as opposed to a fine wool. But as in all breeds, just as in all of us, we're all on a continuum. So you can have merino sheep that have finer wool than other merino sheep. You can have targi that have finer wool than other targi. In other words, every merino will not have finer wool than every Columbia. And, and, and I could go on with that. That's probably enough said. So in the Columbia breed, there's a real variance in terms of wool quality. We happen to select for wool in addition to frame size giving us twins and having good milking ability, open faces and lean legs without much wool on them. All those things are there for a reason. So when we select our replacements, which we will be doing right now, when the lambs are being born right now, and as we go through the stalls every day, or the lambing ground, we will tag potential little lambs that are their mothers are milking well. These are born with great, they have good birth weights, they have good frames. They have very tight wool. Their mothers have great wool. Their mothers are milking great. They have to be out of twins. And they're going to get a special little mark. Later in July, when these lambs have grown out, we're going to separate all those tagged lambs, and we're going to look at them, and we're going to cream them again. And we're going to select the very best replacements to live here for their whole lives that will give us more lambs and grow us beautiful wool and spend their life here. And we'll take those rank candidates and we'll pull samples and we'll have those tested for wool micron count, as well as looking at them for staple length before we choose the rams that we'll then put on our use. Oh, oh my gosh, I just got chills <laughs> listening to you say that. Oh my gosh, I had no idea that the process started with the, the lambing season oh, that you so actually... Neat. Go and look. It starts. It starts even before that. It starts with the landscape. It starts with using grazing animals like sheep to walk the landscape and bite the grasses and stimulate root development and have um, a good protein feed, which is really sunlight energy. You know, you take seeds, soil, water, and sunlight, and magic happens. Uh, and that is the growth of plants, which cover the landscape, hold, or create a sponge 
provide habitat, if you will, for all kinds of animals and food. And so the converted sunlight energy plant matter is bitten by grazing animals like sheep, cattle, elk, deer, all grazing animals will bite those plants. And if you do that in a planned manner, rotate through there, the, the harvesting of forage, that's sunlight energy. The animals then can, so two things happen. They stimulate health of the landscape. That's number one, because if the land is vital, it will carry all of us forward and provide life to all of us, okay? That's the number one thing we must, must do. But then the animals convert that sunlight energy. They just bit. And they, like in sheep, sheep are amazing creatures. I love them so much. They give us food, clothing, and shelter in one animal. They give us meat in lambs. They give us wool to harvest for clothing. And they give us the skins, which were man's early shelters. Food, clothing, and shelter. Meat, wool, and skins. All you have to do with a is add water, and it's life to man. It's life for all of us. And they ask for nothing. You know, we give no inputs to these sheep. They go across the landscape happily eating grasses, raising their babies, enjoying the sun, uh, living clean and free. We have no inputs to them. And they live as, as was intended, grazing freely. And then they give us all these harvests. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It is amazing. So it starts Absolutely. on the land. And then we harvest the wool that they give us once a year. And then um, we take that beautiful fiber and we begin through the value chain of washing it, carting it, combing it, dyeing it, blending it, spinning it, um, and producing beautiful yarns. And then you guys continue the transformation sunlight energy. The story <laughs> doesn't stop. No. You guys are just as connected as every, any other piece of the process. You now take that fiber and through knitting or weaving, um, create fabrics, which become apparel, which become treasures, you know, and you pass down to your children, you know, your grandchildren. You make them for your friends, your family, your loved ones, and you're surrounded by this beautiful harvest of nature. Again, I'm just so mad. <laughs> my, my skin out goosebumps yeah, everywhere. I yeah. I just I, love the the way you just described that and the fact that so the research we've done <clears throat> seems that you and your husband have done a lot of work to be stewards of your ranch. That that is true. And and when we you know, my husband has a passion for the American West. He has a passion for ranching and its history. He has a passion for the land greatest of all. His, his father, his grandfather's logged here in the Pacific West. His father logged and Dan logging to pay his way for, through college. But in his heart, every time he took down a big tree, he said it broke his heart. He loved the land. And as we got older, you know, we're not young anymore. We're up there. All right. So um, when, when he came back from when he got out of college and, you know, spent, of course, both of us have spent a lot of spare time, our spare time in the wilderness. We love the desert. We both love the desert. And we love remote wilderness areas and we're backpackers, okay? We're mountaineers. And so when we go on vacation, we try to get further out, okay? We don't go to towns or resorts or those kind of things. But... He, you look around as the decades have gone on, and you look around, you see that the earth is kind of losing. With the crush of population, development, 
you know, we're paving over our beautiful landscape, we're spreading out and all carving up and taking our own little piece, and there's an impact to that for all of us in terms of the health of the earth. So when Dan had a chance in the late 80s to get a hold of this place, which was his dream, and to have the chance to manage 50 square miles of land where he could see the earth wind, that was his first, that was his first goal. So he began in the late 80s looking at this landscape and thinking, how do I help it win? How do we, how do we utilize our actions on the ground and the use of grazing animals and the way we would farm and crops and harvest sunlight energy? How can we do this way that helps the land be better and better and better and increase its harvest? And he began a program then in 1990, only two steelhead returned to spawn in a major creek here on the ranch called Bacalo. It's a big tributary to the Deschutes River, which is a wild and scenic river here in Oregon, in the desert. It's a beautiful river, world-renowned fly fishing stream. Well, one of the big creeks that feeds that river was Bacalo, and the first 15 miles of it, the headwaters is on this, on this ranch. And so Dan knew that only two steelhead had returned, according to our local uh, monitoring fish and wildlife department, soil and water conservation. And that was very, very serious to Dan to hear that number. And we began, he set out to find a way to, to, to change that. So let's fast forward from 1990 to 2010. That would be 20 years. So we're almost 25 years later. We have record numbers of salmon steelhead returning to spawn in Bacalo Creek. And the reason that has happened is the way Dan began to think differently and manage differently and the practices that we've employed. So I will simply synthesize that down to say our rotational grazing and managing cattle and sheep rotation on the land. The fact that in 96, we obsoleted the plow. The man invented because he was so smart right, to feed a growing nation, right, and share that technology across the globe, to produce more food for a growing world. Well, sometimes there are side effects to choices we make. And in this country, the side effects to the plowing and the summer fallow methods was that we left thousands of acres of land exposed to erosion every other year. And the erosion took the soil and silted in our creeks and depleted, helped deplete the habitat for indicator species like salmon and steelhead. So we took the plow out of production and went back to a farming method, went to a farming method, which is the most progressive practice today in agriculture for cropping. And that was no-till farming where we never plow. That changed um, our fossil fuel use. It reduced erosion significantly. We now build soil instead of losing it. And we have reduced all chemical inputs to the land. We've increased our harvest over time. And we've gone back to how Mother Nature grows a crop, which is every year. We now do that, and we never leave thousands of acres exposed to erosion. So the changes in grazing practices, the timing of grazing, and when we use um, certain pastures, and allowing plants to go to seed, and not plowing anymore, and and all the off-stream watering points we've developed, spring developments up high in the Rimrock country where water just flows out of the ground, all of those things have contributed to the return of indicator species, both wildlife populations here. We have significant numbers of elk 
deer, antelope. Our upland game bird population is moving further out from the valleys and has grown. And the salmon, our biggest number that gets people's attention because a thousand salmon return where there were only two. That when I was telling my husband about your about Imperial Stock and all the things you've done. The thing that made the biggest impact to him was when I told him about the steelhead. <laughs> yeah. He was he was just yeah. dumbfounded. So that's that's what we do here. That's our first job. And that's food, clothing, and shelter for everybody on this planet. And we don't have to we don't have to provide for everybody. You know, it's replicable. Other people are doing this. We're not the only ones. There's a wonderful, wonderful progressive thinking in agriculture today. And and it, it starts with you, you know, you and your listeners. The customers have demanded that we do a better job in producing food, and people get it with food. They're now starting to get it more with fiber. Fourteen years ago, when I would talk to a reporter about our history, our land management practices, our, our and our products, wanted to hear about the meat marketing program we had going, but nobody cared about the fiber. I couldn't get anybody to talk about the fiber. But today, they're listening. Yes. And so. Well, with all the changes that you've made on the ranch and the changes that you have seen in your flock over the years, the changes to this Columbia breed, what do you see changing with the wool that's being produced? And do you see a difference in your product now than say five years ago and going forward, what do you anticipate for the future of the wool that you produce? Well, we do a better and better job all the time on everything. You know, everything that you do, you learn every decision you make. There will always be fallout to that. Um, in agriculture, it, you can't make quick changes. Things take, take time. Um, but I see ever improving, obviously, wool clip um, in terms of quality. We're very conscientious about trying to, to blend both the micron count and the staple length. That's very key. Um, to spin in the worsted system, you must have an adequate staple length of the clip. And that's, that's when you cut the wool off, how long is it? You know, like a haircut. You know, how long was it was when you cut your hair? Did you take off inches? Did you take off four inches? You really need a staple length that's well over three inches to spin well in the worsted system. So we're always looking for that and we'll continue to do a better job and continue to do a good job. Let's see other thing. Repeat for me more of what what's the future look like? Um, the future for us is growing in terms of the wool. It's difficult for, I would love to add new yarns and lots more colors really for all of you out there. It's difficult. Every, you know, as we've grown in customer base, we have to invest in an inventory. So when a store orders our yarn, we can send it out and they don't have to wait six months, right? That's a big, that's a big issue for stores. It, it is a big so we, issue. Yeah, we need to have build an inventory. And I spent one entire year, 2010, I really spent trying to build inventory to step out to the to the trade shows and try to be in more yarn stores. So that's a significant cash flow investment. Right now, at the current level, I'm having to bring yarns in in terms of volume. Every time I add one color in the worsted spun palette, the Aran yarn, the Tracy Two, and the Anna. I will spend more than $10,000 to add a color. Wow. 
So if you want to add, okay, so here's a fun fact for you. I think this is great for the hand-knit customer and market and our retailers and all of you that know of and like Imperial. Um, the Ralph Lauren order, we got made profit on that. Not a lot, but some. But we used every penny of that profit from the Ralph Lauren order. When you watch Team USA tomorrow night, you will know that every pound of yarn that went in those sweaters, every penny of the profit that we made, along with what else we could put with it, added six new yarn colors to our Aaron, Tracy Two, and Anna, our worsted spun collar bullets. Yay! <laughs> Yeah, every penny yarn colors for the hand knitter. That's, <laughs> That's exactly where it went. And yeah. what are so, the colors? Can you tell us? Yes, we added the, the pearl gray. Ooh, I love We that. added whale. We added the heart red, the navy, Marionberry pie, teal shadow. That might be six. Is six? Navy, heart red. Pearl Grey, Quail, Marion Bay, Pie, and Teal Shadow. Those are the six. I have a scene yeah. of Aaron in Teal Shadow, and it is beautiful. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? Yeah. And the way we get that is we take a gray base. We first make a gray base, blending black and the natural, and then over-dyed it to give a little more depth in the color. Oh, so you took two natural colors of sheep to make the base? No, and then I dyed it? Dyed, I, no I had to dye black. At the, It's for us to in our woolen system in our woolen system we have used enough natural grays up until now that we could make the the our charcoal natural 04 and the 02 pearl gray in our woolen yarns our columbia and native twist were natural grays blended with natural to make make those yarns Ooh. but in the palettes those are all there right we don't have any natural grays or natural colors in the worsted spun yarn palette. Okay. Um, very those good. natural colors, those natural colors are going to be coarser wool. To get uh, colored in a longer staple, typically you're going to be coarser wool, and that's going to affect the hand. And and I, I go back to remembering why did I go into the worsted spun yarns? Well, my motivation at that time was for apparel. And in the apparel market, we've got to have that soft, luxurious hand. Right. You have interesting people in the hand craft market. I will never have them all figured out. I guess that's good because they're so unique and you all use use the yarns for so in so many different ways, so many different applications and so for so many different things. But many customers love our woolen spun yarns. Yeah. They're very traditional. They felt well. They're the kind of yarns that clothed man forever. Sir Edmund Hillary was on Everest, the first person to ever ascend Everest, wearing a wool and, <laughs> and wool and spun yarns, okay? So they're the classic yarns, you know? And they're easy to get heathers because you dye it in the locks and then you blend it during carding and you create heather colors. But they're a little more rustic. They're not gonna have the soft hand that those worsted spun yarns have. So there's a customer for all of them. That's what's interesting and why we continue to offer both kinds is because they appeal to different people. 
the phrase you use, dying in the locks, I read that on your website about the process and what it meant. But I'm thinking maybe some of our listeners might not know what that means to die in the locks. Can you explain that? Yes. Well, they wash the wool first. And then when it's in um, the tubs of water, they've been putting in the dye and do the dyeing. So the wool has never been, it's not really separated or carted out at all. It's, it's um, just tufts of clean wool that they begin dyeing. So it's still in its locks. It hasn't been combed out. Think of it as you wash your hair, you get out of the shower. If you were to dye it then before you go out, you know, that's that's a similar um, situation to dyeing in the locks. Okay. Now, okay. which ones are your woolen spun bases? Okay, the woolen spun yarns are the Columbia, named in honor of the breed. That's the first yarn we did. That, I wanted to honor these sheep. I wanted to honor their history here. And when I got my first yarn spun, I just melted. <laughs> <laughs> it was real yarn from these sheep from right here. And I, of course, was a knitter and didn't go buy yarn ever. You know, I wasn't a yarn shopper like all of you maniacs. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was just so touched by the fact that I was holding yarn. I said, in this, the Columbia. So the Columbia yarn is a woolen spun yarn. It's a basic knitting weight yarn. And it's um, a two-ply and is named in honor of the breed. And then we did one that was a soft spun single, kind of chunky. Makes a great fabric, felt beautifully. And there was a history here. Like I could take you on a field trip, uh, if you had a few hours, <laughs> to a site on this ranch where Native Americans lived. It's a bench where three creeks come together down in, in uh, Thorn Hollow Canyon. I love the names here too. Um, they predate us, of course. Thorn Hollow bench down there where there's 30 house pits, depressions. And there's, of course, you know, many artifacts there which are just there. That's where they belong. And um, But the Native Americans, when sheep came into this country big in a big way, would walk this desert landscape pulling the wool off the bushes and gathering that to use in their own apparel and crafts, Okay. Oh, that's cool. And they did it very minimally. And so I honored that with the with this soft spun single, which is minimally processed and named it Native Twist. That's where the name comes from. So that's a soft spun single. And then, of course, our um, sliver or sliver, depending on which part of the country you're in, roping, um, which is used in with our Columbia yarn. And we have several patterns that thrum knitting. The sliver also is used by needle felters or, you know, spinners could use it, but it's not a comb top. It's much more rugged. It's got some noils, and it makes it very a yarn with a great amount of character. I've had some spinners absolutely love it. Others say, I can't believe you sell this. <laughs> so things have a different appeal to different people. And then, of course, the bulky two-strand pen roving, which has been a very, very hot-selling product for us for several number of years. It's washed, carded, thin strips of wool, two strands together that you can knit, crochet, weave, or, of course, spin it because it's already drawn for you. It spins like a dream. I taught 375 class spring at the state fairgrounds to spin in one day with drop spindles and pencil roving, and they all made bracelets and walked away with them. 
Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's so, you know, the Columbia, the Native Twist, the Bulky Two-Strand Pencil Roving, and the Sliver or Sliver Roping, those are the four things we offer in 31 colors in system. And then we have 15 colors, a shorter pet because it's newer for us, in the Worsted Spun Yarns, the Erin, E-R-N, the Tracy Two, which is a sport weight. That one is a gorgeous yarn also, a two-ply, 6.0 yarn. And uh, the Anna, which is named for our fashion designer, Anna Cohen, who's also designing patterns. She wanted to blend two classic favorites, cotton and wool, natural fibers. We call it the marriage of two friends. So we took American cotton, American grown and processed, and plied it with the wool to make our Anna yarn. I have to mention that I love your bulky two-strand. I've made a cowl in that that I've brought out today, and it's sitting on my lap right now because it's a little chilly here, and it keeps me warm, but I just love that yarn. <laughs> it's yummy, isn't it? And, it, it? and a few years ago, that was really rare. I know more people have brought it out now, but we have some really great pattern support for that. And, you know, for some people, it's too tender, and it comes apart. It's frustrating for them. And I think the most important thing on the bulky two-strand is to change your your you're added going in. You do it differently. You don't pull out of a bag. You take the cheese or the little cake. We call them cakes of roving because we all like cake, especially chocolate. <laughs> but you put the cake of roving beside you, and you unwind some, and you off you go knitting it. And then when you're ready, you unwind some more. And if it does come apart, you overlap it, you know, the traditional spit ply it, roll it back together, and off you go, and you will never know. But it makes a wonderful fabric. Yeah, I love it. I have, like I said, I have a cowl made out of it, and I'm, I actually want to make a shawl out of it as well. I just, I love the stuff. It's so soft and squishy. Yeah, and it is very it just lofty too. Feels nice. <laughs> yeah, you. We use that pencil roving um, in an air thrown shuttle on production loom. We actually threaded the pencil roving into the shuttles and used it for the of beautiful scarves we made for this national retailer. They were a men's scarf, beautifully woven scarves with the Columbia on the warp, the Columbia yarn, because I only had woolen yarns back then. We used the Columbia on the warp and the pencil roving on the weft. We put, touched a little mohair in there too and created a beautiful draping scarf that this tailor canceled their imported cashmere scarves and ordered that in, in 500 at a time. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. It's a very, that's story. It was very successful. But it was putting, so when people tell me that you can't knit with the pencil roving, I know that we can even production weave with it, which will just blow your mind. Yeah. But it's possible. <laughs> now, you've mentioned pattern support in Anna Cohen. And I was, I've had your sun, it's the sunburst dress or sun. What is it called? Sunburst shirt dress. There we go. That's what it is. The sunburst. Yeah. I have had that in my queue for probably a year now. And I have the Tracy 2 in the rain colorway, the beautiful gray, oh, sitting there. Yes. To knit it, And I haven't knit it yet. And I really should because I've been wearing those kind of tunic dresses every day. But Oh, yes. And that that is a complicated and there's lots of knitting there so that's a great project for you <laughs> i was really pleased when that pattern came out erin sloniker of market news she picked that pattern up before we even had it off the press 
and she had seen the photography, and she knit that to wear to Rhinebeck that year. Oh, she nice. absolutely <laughs> loved it. Yeah, she wore it to Rhinebeck. So mm. how long has Anna been working with you? She came to work with me in 2008, mainly as we did the research and feasibility work and created a business plan to see if it was viable to take an apparel line forward based on the wool. We did that study, and at the end of that time, we also had to find the value chain partners because I am completely committed to working exclusively in the United States. So that means we're going to work as local as we can, as regional, and but certainly domestically. So we needed to find the partners to mill the yarns needed to production knit, production weave, cut and sew. Could we make a pill dollars in this economy? And so... We, at the end of 2009, we had done it. We, In fact, I have hanging right behind me here uh, all the samples from the Imperial Collection by Anna Cohen, which headlined Portland Fashion Week in the fall of 2009. We took the runway right behind a company out of Paris as the finale of the evening, and it was a stunning success. I've got beautiful dresses hanging here, coats, slacks, blazers, uh, accessories. Um, it was wonderful, but she... Um, we, we found we found every partner we needed to make any kind of clothing that you could want to in this country. And Anna, we, we thought we might take that forward, but uh, as ranchers, we weren't quite ready to take an apparel line forward. And so it was then that I said, wow, Anna, of course, we love working together. I said, would you be willing to design patterns for the hand-knit market? And she said, oh, my gosh, Jeannie, why didn't you think of that sooner? I said, I don't know. So off we went. So since about 2010, maybe, or 11, we actually began bringing Anna's uh, patterns into the hand-knit market. So the essential sweater dress, the sunburst shirt dress, the one, some of our latest in the Aran yarn, the Rimrock cardigan, has been an excellent pattern with the Aran I yarn. I love that part. Yeah. That's, that's a sweater that I can live in. So she's, she approaches it um, from a des, uh, fashion design. She, she c comes up with a theme. She creates silhouettes. So she chooses the colorways and um, then silhouettes and then matching up stitch patterns with to get the right drape and for the particular garment and then starts working through, um, you know, the more technical aspects of fit and keeps the style in there and, we go to work. Well, and I have to repeat those pattern names for the listeners because Rimrock Cardigan is in my queue, and that's going to be on the needles fairly soon. And the Essential Sweater Dress, too. That is just something that I know I would wear a lot yeah. over leggings. Yeah, and that can be knit. That one was designed in the Columbia. But the good things about these yarns, you know, I've talked, I've talked quite a bit now about the rustic nature, more rustic nature of the woolen spuns the smooth end of the worsted spuns. So the essential, the, the, those two yarns, the Columbia and the Aran, almost interchange with any pattern. So you can okay. take that essential sweater dress. It was written for the Columbia, but you can knit it in the Aran with almost, check gauge, of course, always. But most people can knit that to gauge um, using either yarn in that pattern. Okay. And no. same thing is true with a lot of our bulky trend pattern support. You can grab the Anna the wool cotton and the worsted system. We had a cowl called the Sensuous Cowl, 
which is was designed in the pencil roving and we knit it with the uh, Anna and it's my favorite to show piece. It's my favorite piece to show what the Anna yarn can be knitted up. It's beautiful. And there's almost straight across a tray, you know, you can, you can use those yarns. See, I can't wait to get my hands on a skein of that Anna. I've been searching for a good cotton wool blend. And I think that that is, I'm going to have that to try it out and find yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> it has a great memory. It's a, it's a, has a great memory. Memory. It feels good. You just wrap up in it. Ooh, see, yeah. I like hearing that already. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So one question that we did want to ask, <clears throat> not, not, um, in a negative way at all, but a $9 pattern is a fairly expensive pattern on Ravelry, and most of your patterns are in that range. So tell us how that price helps Imperial Stock Ranch. The steps that we go through, it's pattern development is a very expensive process. For me as a rancher, I don't do any of these things, and, and you know, many of the patterns out there are, you know, many designers sell, they have pattern lines. Companies have uh, designers maybe on staff. What I have is I am a rancher, <laughs> and so I pay for every step from this from when we raise the animals to we harvest the wool. The costs all the way along. You start moving through the value chain to get it washed, carded, dyed, spun. Then I've got to get. I didn't know you had to have patterns. In fact, when I started selling yarn, we didn't have any. And I learned, again, the mentoring from people in the industry and people like you saying, well, Jeannie, this would be really great to knit with her, but we need a pattern. I'm like, oh, okay. So, well, where do I get those? You know, so you find out you have to hire somebody to designing these patterns. Not only do you design the pattern, I've got to have it technically edited. And with Anna, she is an incredible designer, but she doesn't, she can't do the technical writing of the pattern. So we hire a technical interpreter to interpret and create the pattern that she is designing. So there's a design step, an interpreter step. Now I have to go to technical edit. That's another step. Then we have to, I don't, is this what you wanted to get? This is what goes yeah, into this it. Is, then yeah, we, yeah. That's exactly it because there are a lot of patterns that haven't gone through that process. That should. <laughs> and so for, us as knitters, it's really important to know that you have taken the time and the effort to make sure the patterns have gone through the process, and that's the type of patterns that knitters want to put their money towards. So let me follow this on through. So the design is, is one piece of the what we pay for. Then the technical interpretation, the technical edit. Then we must do photography. So we hire the model and the photographer and do the photography shoot, the photo shoot. Then you have to go through the selection process and finalizing the profiles that then go to the formatting of the pattern to put it in the format, drop in the photography, and now you're ready to go to, but you also have to have it test knit. So then I hire test knitters to knit the pattern. And now that we've gone through all those steps, we think we have a pattern that's ready to go out there that's going to work for you, the knitter. And should it not work? We get an email from someone that says, I'm having problems or doesn't see or your numbers are off. We, I go right back to the technical editor to dig into that pattern. And I will do one of, and if we could get somebody out there, they would testify to this. I know that we give incredible uh, customer service and support on this. 
because we will have the technical interpreter answer the questions for the knitter and I send it right back to the knitter. And if they're struggling, I call up one of my test knitters, put them in touch with that individual knitter wherever they are in the country, and they have a conversation and a series of emails, and my test knitters are so incredible, they will coach that person right down through the process on that pattern. And most of the times, it's the person knitting that's just not reading carefully or they're reading too much into it. It's a misreading problem yeah. most of the time. I also want to say that early on, I believed every, I've had some frustrations because I, this industry doesn't necessarily have certified professional uh, standards. Right. So I can meet someone and they tell me I'm a designer or, oh, by the way, here's my card. I do technical, I do technical editing of knit patterns. And I go, wow, thank you very much. Okay. Well, we have some patterns and I've been, I've been, kind of naive as I've walked into learning this process over the last 14 years. And I've hired people that really didn't have any credentials. In fact, what credentials, who's going to give them credentials in this industry to do these right. jobs? There's no, there's no certification. It's not like a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher even that must have a, a degree and pass a standardized test. Okay. So in this industry, it can be frustrating because I've spent thousands of dollars on people that caused me a great deal of grief um, um, that I learned over the years. And to, I can say today at this point, we are working with some very incredibly talented people who do an excellent job. And the patterns we're putting out there today in the last couple of years are really solid. But I apologize for anyone that's had frustrations with our patterns. But believe me, it's frustrating for me, too, because I've got to give the back end support to it. But those are all the steps that go to getting a pattern out there and trying to keep it affordable. But it's very, very expensive to put patterns out. Well, that that completely makes sense to me. Yeah. So that makes sense that it's a nine dollar pattern and it's going to be a well-written, technically edited, test written pattern. So that's awesome. Yes, and we have a range of prices. So the smaller projects, you know, are going to be $6. None of our patterns are over 9 but they're going to range between 6 and 9 So a complicated sweater is going to be at 9 A simple thing is going to be at 6 You know, there's there's a range. Yes, there is. Um, and I, I speaking know. of the smaller projects, there's also a shawl and a cape and a bag, all of which I really, really <laughs> wanted it. It was funny once I started looking at your specific the pattern collection, yeah, yeah. I, there i thought oh my gosh i want to knit at least like eight of these <laughs> just what i need is well the other you. thing that we are doing and this is in the last year we've started doing is to try to do in more and more pattern support you know although it, it is very expensive but um the patterns we put out two two groups of patterns we put them out in june at the you know the trade show where people are ordering to bring in for fall winter and then we just put out a group at the what's typically the January show. That's for spring, summer. So those are two groups of patterns that we put out. But for our retailer, our yarn store partners, we put out a free pattern to them. And it's up on Ravelry so someone can buy it. But it's free to our retail partners. So they get away to their customers at no charge if they want. Just to support the sale of yarns. And we do that every other month. So six of them a year. 
We provide to all our retail partners across the country at no charge, so they can give them away to their customers who are buying Arrow Yarn. That's great. That is great. great. Now, okay, so you just mentioned your retailers. Where can people buy Imperial Stock Ranch yarn? Well, anywhere that that we have a retail partner. Which, if uh, <laughs> we have a map on imperialyarn.com, we do have an e-com site. And our prices are a little bit higher on there because our bread and butter are those shops that are out there selling the yarn and patterns because, you know, people like to go in and touch it. And feel oh, it. yeah. And, and they also then are there to give people support when they have problems with a pattern or they're struggling or they, they're a beginning knitter and they want to go up to an intermediate level. Those people are the knitting community. You know, they're, they're the walk-in-the-door knitting community, in, you know, all across the country. And we're growing in terms of how many stores we're in. But, you know, we know we're not prolific, you know, but we're newer. We're also a family ranch. And it's very difficult to, you know, have a big marketing and advertising budget to get out there and let people know about us. You know, it's difficult to do that. For Dan and I, we didn't pay for an ad until like two years ago, ever, for anything. It just seemed too extravagant, you know. Um, we do everything, everything has to pencil here. Everything's to pay its way. And it's, it's been a real challenge because um, we're pretty rare, you know, to have a ranch uh, with a yarn product at the level we are is pretty rare. But um, we work really hard. We make everything pay its way. I always, there's a joke here on tours. When we have, see, they see the dogs, you know, there's guardian dogs and there's herding dogs. They see the horses. The horses have a job. They're our working partner to move livestock, and they need a job. And then when they're not working, they're out eating grass, helping stimulate plants, right? And the dogs have jobs to do, and um, and um, every tractor, every truck, every pickup, it has a job. And so I jokingly say, yeah, my, my husband calls the dogs his tractors, horses too. Everything has a job, and if it doesn't, it has to go down the road. There's no place for anybody in here that doesn't do their job. And I always jokingly say, does that go for wives too? <laughs> but do your job or you go down the road. I don't know. But um, well, I do think, so what were we talking? Well, I do think you are doing a really good job because I do frequent a lot of yarn stores. And in the past few years, I have seen the Imperial Ranch label popping up in more and more yarn stores in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. I, I, oh, wow. I see you all over the place now. So Yeah, and the one thing about the stores is they may not have all our inventory. They may bring in the Aaron, the Tracy Two, and the Anna, but they don't have the Woolens. Or maybe they bring in the Columbia and the Pencil Roving and the Native Twist, but they don't offer the Aaron, the Tracy Two, and the Anna. Actually, that's very so, true. I have yet to find a store that sells the complete line. Right. <laughs> Because it's a cash flow. See, they have the problem. They have the challenge of a cash flow. You know, they've got to sink a big investment to bring us, bring in everything, just like we have to, to add colors and add yarns. So all of us are small businesses. We're all trying to stay viable, right, economically, or, you you, you know, your doors close. And so what you can do is you can... Here's a good thing for people to know. Any store that has our product, if they have a customer that wants something else they're not carrying, sell it to them. 
we will drop ship it directly to their customer or ship it immediately to them. They don't have to bring in the Aran yarn to sell it. They can have, if they have our pencil roving and our Columbia and some patterns, and somebody wants the Rimrock cardigan, just special order it. We'll ship it out immediately. It'll be there in a couple of days. Really? Nice. Oh, yeah. We, we're really easy to work with. We probably have the lowest minimum for in-stores in the country. And we have no minimums on reorders, no minimums on the patterns that they stock. So they can bring us in, and then if they need special order, we immediately ship it to them. We are really, really supportive of those retailers. So if you want to order more teal shadow in that dye lot you're sitting on, because you decided you want to do a bigger product, then you have a local store, but they don't carry the Aran yarn. Tell them, can I get the teal shadow Aran yarn? Oh, and by the way, can I get that pattern? Uh, this one over here, and oh, throw in one skein of Tracy too. I want to try it in natural. Can you have Imperial? Can you can you sell that to me? If they don't know they can do that, you tell them they okay, can. Okay, that's good to know. Yes. Well, they just have to call us. We'll immediately ship it out, and so they they then get to sell it. They get their margin. We support them, and they may get introduced to a yarn that they hadn't even thought about. Yeah. I may end up doing that this very week because one of our local yarn stores does sell your yarns, but I've never seen Anna mm -hmm. and I've never seen Tracy or Columbia. So it's very good to know that she right. can do that. Just, yeah, yeah. So we can do that or people can go shop online at our place. But like I said, the best, the best situation for the customer is being able to touch it and feel it at the store, get help at the store, and buy it at the store and support that business as well as exactly. us. Exactly. And so that, that works for everybody, you know, try to shop as local as you can and keep those local yarn store doors open so people can congregate. I, I, I really love that you are helping to support the local yarn stores too. I think that also, it seems like it's so along the lines of everything you and your husband do. It's just very good to hear that. Yes. absolutely. Well, you know, there's a uh, new statistics in the industry and only like 51% of yarn stores in the most recent research are actually profitable. So those yarn stores, we can't walk by taking it for granted. They need all of us, you know. And um, that means that about half of them are struggling. So it's tough for them to bring in a new line or to bring in more offerings from the companies they already have. It's hard for them. So if we can drop ship for them or drop ship to them for customers of things they don't have in stock, we'll do it in a heartbeat. Okay, that's excellent to know. Now, is there anything else you wanted to share with us about your yarns and fiber or anything else to wrap up? Well, um, I don't know. Let's see, do you want anything on our history? I mean, I, I think the key thing on our history is for people to know that we're an ongoing ranch. We are living history that the ranch began in 1871 as a homestead claim, and the young man that founded it came here with his saddle horse, his pack horse, and his scissors strapped on. And, you know, it was he had been born on the Oregon Trail as they came west in an ox cart. And anyway, he stopped on his own when he was 19. He filed, I'm sitting here at the headquarters in the first 160 acres he proved up on and got title to. And he lives two miles down the, down the creek from me in a, cave in the creek bank where we still pick his apples off his apple trees 
So it's a, one of those great American stories. And he brought in sheep right away and cattle at a time when range wars were going on in Oregon and they were still shooting at each other. And he, he, he established grain fields we're still farming today. He established hay that we're still cutting today in the sub-irrigated meadows. He established a four-commodity operation. That diversity is what helped him succeed when many homesteaders failed. And I think it's fun for people to realize that all those production areas are carrying on today. We're still producing grains, hay, cattle, sheep, and carrying on in the buildings he built during the time when everything was done with horses. Our barns, shearing facilities, all the major agricultural structures here at the headquarters, which we're a national historic district, about 22 acres of buildings and grounds here. But he, we're still benefiting from his vision his and his planning and building for permanence. And that is quite remarkable. The ranch has never been on the market, um, you know, offered for sale publicly. That's never happened. So there's been this incredible continuity and um, and and to realize that we we began the yarn business because we lost the ability to sell as a commodity in 1999 when everything had gone offshore and the processing um, and manufacturing here had closed. So those are our key points. And then I don't know if you want to know any more of the Olympic story, but that's an amazing miracle that's happened, and um, we're we're just feel grateful and humble to be a small part of it and. The excitement tomorrow night for the whole world to watch our Team USA, the Parade of Nations. That's exciting. And they'll be wearing the Aaron yarn. That's <laughs> very yeah, good. And that, that's very cool. <laughs> so that, what is the date and time of the opening ceremonies? Do you happen to know? Well, it's Friday. It's tomorrow, uh, February 7th on NBC. The people need to just check their local listings. Um, I'm not sure exactly what time the Parade of Nations are on. I haven't gotten that far yet to look. I but. just wanted to make sure that we mentioned the date because we will release this podcast tomorrow. But some yeah. people will be listening to it after. I see. Yes. Yes. Friday, uh, February 7th um, is when the opening ceremonies will air on NBC. Uh-huh. And Charlene will link in the show notes to the Ralph Lauren Made in the U.S. video that features Imperial Stock Ranch yarn Mm -hmm. and the other great videos that do go through the history of your ranch and how you got into the fiber arts industry and stuff, which are very, very, very well done. Yes, that's that's terrific. Thank you so much. Well, it takes everyone. I've said this for the whole 14 years we've done this, whether someone buys one skein or 1000 skeins. It takes everybody to make this work. It takes every partner, and when people choose this yarn and become our partner, they truly become part of our our family, a part of the ranch. They're part of the, just like the slow food movement, they're part of the solution to um, working close to home. The This is a very interesting um, fact for you and your, your following, that when we harvested the wool and sold as a commodity, it provided no other value to the region. Okay, today, what we spent in, say, 2013 on test knitters, women working out of their homes, um, packaging, the processing, uh, jobs here. We have we have seven women here at the ranch headquarters, excuse me, five, uh, five that live on the ranch and work here. Those are ranch wives. Those are jobs that didn't used to exist because of the value added nature of what we're doing with the wool. And two more drive from the local town. So they have a 40-mile trip each day. 
And so that's seven of us that work at Imperial Yarn each day and then several more off-site, like the designer, tech interpreter, editors, those people. Those are jobs for women in a rural setting that didn't, didn't exist. And the other cool thing is that Imperial Yarn headquarters since January of 2011, we took the old house, which was the showpiece of the empire, fixed it up, and moved the Imperial Yarn business in it. It had been vacant almost 50 years. So Wool had built it when Wool was king, all right? Wool had built it, and now Wool's given new life as in regeneration, a, reju a renewed, renewed interest in natural fiber and wool in particular, and a, um, a surging interest in making in America and using American yarns, that's been the result of customers like you that's actually given a whole building new life today. That's very cool. That is very cool. And rural, rural economic development people tell us that there's a six or seven times multiplying effect to dollars spent locally versus dollars go offshore. So today, the value-added business of wool uh, for Imperial Ranch is contributing over $2 million to our regional and domestic economy here in the U.S., and that's one ranch's effort. That's fantastic. Fabulous. Yeah, that's amazing. I love it is story. amazing. <laughs> love hearing this story. Yep. So every dollar, every skein of yarn is important. Every customer is important to us, and hopefully you will always have that experience when you call here. If you need help with a pattern or you need one skein of yarn or whatever it is. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you, especially for taking time out of your week this week when you have so much going on yes. with the <laughs> opening ceremony and everything. We really appreciate your time and all that you do for the wool industry. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be included and um, be a part of the community with the women that take the sunlight yarn and transform it into beautiful apparel. And that's what you guys do. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very, very much. Good luck to you. Okay, thank you so thank much. You, Bye. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Hello, we're back after our interview with Jeannie from Imperial Stock Ranch. There were a couple things we wanted to add to the end of this episode before we go live. First, we wanted to do a 30-second update on the self-indulgent knit-along. You guys are posting some fantastically beautiful projects in the FO thread. Thank you very much. And we also have prizes from Jeannie. Prizes. Okay. So Jeannie Carver has offered to award four listeners some prizes. We're going to start a thread in our group on Ravelry. We'll label it as the Imperial Stock Ranch giveaway. And why don't you guys just mention in the thread what either what yarn you would like to try from so Imperial which yarn Stock, base? which yarn base, or maybe go look at the Imperial Collection patterns and mention a pattern that you would like to try. Or both. Just, or both. Yeah. yeah, just as a way to familiarize yourself with what Imperial is offering. And along those lines, we have four prizes that we are offering, and we'll draw at random from one of you who posted in that thread. The first prize will be a cake of the bulky two-strand pencil roving and a pattern for the ribbon cravat designed by Lee Radford. And that's the, the same base you used for your cowl. For my mega cowl, yes, which I very much love. And 
let's see, one skein of Columbia with the pattern for the Juliet cuffs. And that's their woolen spun worsted weight yarn. Yes, and then also a skein of the worsted spun Aran yarn and a skein of the Anna yarn, which is the wool and cotton blend. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jeannie, for PMing us after the interview to say that you wanted to do that for our listeners. That is just awesome. Yes, it is. It Charlene is. and I were so excited. We were texting <laughs> back and forth all afternoon. Oh my gosh, she's so nice. <laughs> And the last thing we wanted to do a recap on was Stitches West. Stitches West. Gail and I will be there the weekend of February 20th. I think 21st is the day we get okay. there. Okay. No, 21st <laughs> is Friday. So we're going to be there the 20th, which is Thursday, through Saturday the 22nd. So you will find us walking the floor, but we will be in two specific places as well. On Saturday, there is a podcaster and podcaster listener meetup in the hotel bar adjacent to the convention center and this is not exclusive to any particular podcast this is just come and hang out with all the fun people who are meeting in the bar and that is from one to four on saturday charlene and i will be there from two to four because we will be working in the club awesome neighborhood fiber company booth saturday morning and early afternoon and Club Awesome, if you don't already know, is the combination of Neighborhood Fiber Company, who is Corita, who we've interviewed on the podcast, Cephalopod Yarns, and Dragonfly Fibers. So those three vendors are having a booth together at Stitches West, and they're calling themselves Club Awesome, or Team Awesome. Team Awesome. And they did a club, yarn right. club, that was Club <laughs> Awesome. So Charlene and I will be there working in their booth. Saturday from about 11.30 to 2, I think, I think is what so. we're scheduled yeah. to do. And then we'll be back in that booth again Saturday afternoon at 4 to do a drawing. So they are actually, this is pretty cool, Stash and Burn podcast, their co-hosts Jenny and Nicole mm -hmm. will be in the Team Awesome booth Friday at 4 o'clock to do a drawing do and a giveaway. Drawing Charlene and I will be there then because total fangirl <laughs> crush, we can't wait to meet Jenny and Nicole. We will be doing the drawing for Team Awesome on Saturday at 4, and then Barb and Tracy from Two Knitlet Chicks will be doing the drawing Sunday at 4. So Sunday, I believe it's at 3, oh, because that's right. the show it's floor earlier day. closes early. Right. So if you're there any of those days and you're interested in participating in the drawing for Team Awesome, check it out. They have beautiful, beautiful, beautiful yarns. So that was our update yeah that is the update we really hope you enjoyed the somewhat different episode with our guest Jeannie Carver from Imperial Stock Ranch I know we did and have a good week and happy knitting happy knitting bye you can find us on iTunes at Yarniacs podcast 